0: I want to begin with a verse. I want you to take a look at this verse. This verse is written from Peter. And Peter is the apostle that denied the Lord three times. But listen to what he says in his first epistle. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. I decided to start with this because I know there's some skeptics in here. The reason I say that is because by nature, I'm a skeptic. Actually, Julie's testimony was right online where she said, I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm interested, but I need more evidence. For many years of my life, honestly, Easter was eggs, chocolate bunnies, Wearing my mom's scratchy ties. Actually, this one's not that scratchy, because she's watching. So I'm wearing my mom's silky, soft ties. Eating a big dinner on Sunday, and then falling asleep the rest of the afternoon. That was Easter for me. If someone were to ask me at that time, if I believed that Jesus died and rose again, I'd say, sure, I believe that. But if someone asked me it like this, is everything you are, and everything you hope to be, and everything you've wrapped yourself up in, is it contingent on something that happened two years two thousand years ago in Jerusalem? Is that you? Is it everything you are? I'd say don't take religion so serious. That's probably what I would have said. I approached Easter, truthfully, more as a fable than something to place and build. A life on and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about some of you are here because your mom wants you to be here some of you are here because your grandma wants you to be here some of you are here because you're curious but you're necessarily not here to worship the one who made you to really honor him above everything well I am convinced Christ wants to turn your view that may be a fable this morning into a living, breathing, soul-transforming faith. So the title of this message is From Fable to Faith. To do that, I want us to open up to the book of Luke, chapter 24. This is the last chapter. We've gone through the whole book of Luke all last year, and today's the last chapter. This is the most amazing chapter in the whole book. And I just want to begin by reading the first 12 verses. Luke 24, verse 1. This is what we would call the biblical event of Easter. The facts. These are just the facts. And they're pretty straightforward. I'm sure you've heard it. Let me just kind of review them. A few women went to the tomb. They wanted to put spices on Jesus' body. They thought it was going to start rotting, and they wanted to preserve his body. When they got to the tomb, this massive stone that was sealed to close the tomb was actually rolled away. Two bright, shining angels said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? And they looked, and his body was gone, and the linen he was wrapped in was lying on the floor. Then they remembered that Jesus predicted all this. He actually said it three times I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. He said it three times. So they went to tell the disciples, and verse 9 says, They told all these things to the eleven. So you could say, These are the facts. This is why Christians around the world on this day gather and wear purple ties because of these facts. This is why we sing happy songs. This is why we say, He is risen. That's why we say that. And many of you love this day. You you really do. You love these events. But there are some of you in here that aren't too sure. Some of you don't buy it. In fact, when you try to imagine some of these events happening, like an appearance of angels brighter than lightning, or a man risen from the dead, you probably murmur to yourself verse 11. Look at verse 11 again. The women run, they tell the apostles, but these words seem to them an idle tale. The New International Version takes that phrase, idle tale, and says, to them, it was nonsense. It's nonsense. It's crazy. Actually, I was reading a Greek lexicon written by this old British man, and he said, it's kind of like these words to the men were women speaking mindless twaddle. His mindless, tw- and he probably said it like that mindless twaddle. Here's a true story of a rich businessman. He came to believe in Jesus. The gospel touched him so much, he considered leaving his lucrative stock brokerage career to become, dare I even say it, a preacher a stockbroker to a preacher. You want to talk about the heights to the depths? When he told his wife about this, and his wife loved finer things, she was uh, hot. She blew a gasket. He went up to his wife He said, Look, honey, I've seen a light. I have to do something about it. As Scripture says, the laborers are few. She replied, Are you, are you just trying to be amusing? And she laughed in his face. Later on, she confided to her friend, and here's what she said. Why should he give up all he has to follow a story as believable as Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Drink or drugs or other women are wanting to run a bookshop in Tucson, Arizona? I could handle that. But if I knew he was interested in religion before we got married... I wouldn't have loved him anymore if he weighed 400 pounds, she said. I can't bear preachers. She finished with saying this to a friend. I'm sorry, but I, it's best to be honest. I don't believe in God, not e- even under any of the phony names like a higher power or the man upstairs. Churches are nothing but social clubs full of hypocrites. And if my guy wants to enter any, any such preposterous farce, he's going to have a divorcee on his hand. For her, and for many other people, and for some of you, and for some of you, speculating about a God you can't see and a heaven that no one really knows about seems like a supreme waste of time. So you could say, for many, Christianity is nonsense. Why would anybody give their life to it? Well, it is at this point in the heart of a human being Christ loves to come and take on the challenge. He loves to confront a hard heart. He delights in turning fables into faith. And Luke is going to use a story called the Emmaus Road to describe how this happens. Look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going into a village named Emmaus. About seven miles from Jerusalem, And they were talking with each other about all these things that have happened. All these things were all the events I already talked about. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. The location of Emmaus, as it says, is about seven miles from Jerusalem, but historians today aren't quite sure where it's at. Then these two men who he's talking to, we'll find out later, one is named Cleopas, and we don't know the other one's name. Cleopas was a disciple, but not an apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he was a follower of Christ. And he was very intimate with the disciples, and they're sad. I think Luke meant this story to be rather vague because it's a picture a generic picture of the faith journey each one of us must take every one of us is on a journey and i'm going to call this road map the emmaus road map this map is going to take us from unbelief to belief from fable to faith from skeptic to sincere believer i'm on this path and so are you but we're on it in different places I'll show you the two, three places you can be. The first part of the journey is where the non-believer begins, the foolish heart, the way Jesus describes it. They aren't quite sure. They hear the witnesses. They see evidence. But according to Luke 24, 40, 24, 24, it says, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as a woman had said. But him, they did not see. Just like Julie said, if I don't see it, I don't believe it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. We're going to see he's not relying on eyesight, he's relying on scripture to prove truth. We're going to talk about that in a second. So, this first position a foolish heart is the person that thinks a belief in an invisible God is foolish. The next part of the journey is where Jesus starts speaking to the heart. And it becomes curious. In the Emmaus Road story, we're going to say Jesus is going to start opening up scripture to the travelers. But they want to hear more. And when he wants to leave, look at verse 28 and 29. They drew near to the village to which they are going. And he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him, strongly saying, stay with us for it's towards evening. And the day is now far spent. They wanted him to stay. They were curious. They wanted to find out more. When a person reaches this part of the journey, they do start craving truth. It's their mind starts opening up. Knowledge is sought after. And even the company of God's people begins to be welcome. You start going to church and listening, but curiosity is still not conviction. It's still not there yet. There's one more stage. It's awake. It's an awakened heart. It's when Jesus, open your eyes to see him. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, he starts talking. He breaks bread with them. In verse 31, their eyes were open and they recognized him. Their eyes were open and they knew it was him. It is when Jesus opens your heart by faith. When you are truly awakened, like when you really get it, No longer is this story so fantastic, but rather springs of living water start coming out from the inside of you. Bubbles up inside of your soul. Look how verse 32 talks about the moment of conviction when they finally got it. They said to themselves, did not our hearts burn within us? As he talked along the road, there's something inside that starts happening. I start start awakening. I start craving truth, but... Believing it, when you reach this final stage, the Easter story is no longer something that happened 2,000 years ago. It touches you right now. It's yours. And you can't live without it. Actually, it becomes the very treasure you've been searching for your whole life, and you know you finally found it. But practically, and this is where we need to speak to the skeptic's heart. How does a person travel from foolish to curious to awake? How does that happen? Cuz in the skeptic's mind, I don't I don't see it. I don't get it. God uses three tools to convince you. And these tools are powerful. They really are. However, most skeptics just believe Christianity is nothing but a blind leap into a dark chasm of nonsense. They really believe some of us who are Christians, all we did is close our eyes, held our breath, and just hope. We just hope. That's all we're doing is hoping on nothing factual or substantial. Is that what faith is? Many of the educated elite say belief is only for the feeble-minded, for the weak. In other words, to a lot of the intelligent people, faith is only for fools. But the Bible has never presented the progression of faith as foolishness. It is actually based on reason. Listen to what 1 Peter says, chapter 3, verse 15. This is 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So hope is built on reasonability, your mind. We don't abandon intellect when we believe in Christ. We are finally loving him with our mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Not abandon your mind. And so these three tools are going to appeal to your mind. But honestly, rare is the person who really examines them. As G.K. Chesterton once said Christianity has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and not tried. So, a lot of you who are skeptics, you like to say, Yeah, it's nonsense. Have you really looked at it honestly? Honestly. In fact, two of these three tools are used any time we try to convince anybody of anything. The first one, history is going to be used. Historical events actually happened when it comes to Christ. Look at Luke 24, 18 to 21. Verse 18 says, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, because Jesus is acting kind of like he didn't understand. They said, don't you know the events? And Cleopas knows the events. He said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? He's baiting them to see if they know. And they said, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would have been the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, It is now the third day since these things have happened. So Jesus is beginning with faith dependent on a real occurrence. The events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are the bedrock of our faith. They say hope isn't necessarily hope looking in the future and hoping things will come out right. Hope is looking in the past, knowing the future is going to turn out right because something did happen, and it's real. This is where we start. Standing on historical reality. I love what Paul said to King Agrippa. He's trying to convince this king. And he says to the king in Acts twenty six twenty six, this has not been done in a corner, meaning the death of Christ is known. If you're an American, you know this story. All you got to do is turn on cable and you'll see some blue-haired preacher talking about it all the time. Yes, sir, Jesus rose from the dead. Problem is, the, sometimes the messenger gets in the way of the message, but the message is still true. Skeptics have every right to question feelings. Skeptics have every right to test the veracity of miraculous claims. Absolutely. But they don't have the luxury of saying, I just don't believe in the events as described in the gospel. I think it's all made up. God has broken into time and space, sent his son named Jesus of Nazareth to a place called Israel. He really died on a cross. On a hill called Golgotha. This is where faith starts on something solid. Try saying to your teacher, I don't think Abraham Lincoln lived. I think slavery was made up, and there's no revolutionary war. They'll look at you as a fool. But somehow when a person denies that an actual man named Jesus Christ, when they deny that, you're sound sophisticated. God set up history so it can be examined. Have you ever really examined it? second tool he uses is the testimony of credible people. Listen to verse 22 and 24. Verse 22. Moreover, so all this stuff happened, and then Cleopas says, Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said it is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. So these ladies who have been traveling with us, Joanna, who gives a lot of money to the group, are very believable people. And then the disciples go and they said, you know what, these ladies, their account is accurate, but they're sad, they don't believe. God uses sane people to share the good news with you. That is why he gave us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written by four guys that saw it. That's why he gives us the 12 disciples, the apostles. That's why he gives us Paul. These guys are really good men, credible people that died for it. They actually saw him. So every bit of history, if you think about it this way, every bit of history you accept right now is true are because you heard testimony from an eyewitness. Every bit of history you believe is first from an eyewitness. I'll ask it this way. Think of those people in your life who really take their Christian faith serious. I'm not people who talking about people who use lip service. I'm people I'm talking about think of people who believe in Jesus and live it. Are they trustworthy? Are they believable? Or are they the sort of people who are always trying to lie to you and get ahead? Are they creeps and scallywags, or are they honest people? Or you could ask the question like this, and I love this question. I once heard it, and it's great. Imagine you were driving in a bad part of town. It's in the middle of the night, and your car breaks down next to an unlit alleyway. You notice three teenagers emerging from the dark, walking towards you. Would it mean anything to you know, for you to know that they are believers in Christ and they just left the Bible study? Would that help you? Why? Because true belief really changes you. Final and most powerful tool that God uses to convince the heart is the scriptures, God's scriptures. Look at verse 27, 32, and 39 to 48. Verse 27. Well, let's begin in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he's saying Genesis all the way to Malachi. That's the whole Old Testament he's referring to to be an account of Jesus. They are pointing to Jesus. So he's using the Old Testament to say this is all about me. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, Then they said with each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? When? When he opened up the Scriptures. And then look at verse 39 to 48. Verse 39, and he's talking to his disciples after they see him. See my hands and my feet? That it is myself, touch me and see. For spirit is not of flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While they were still displaced, still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling. He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. He's referring to the scripture. So the book, the Bible's not just a book written by human hands. But these words in this book are God-breathed. The Holy Spirit worked through human hands to write his very words. I'll just tell you on a personal note, talking about me. Before I became a Christian, I really thought I knew the Bible. I really did. I really thought I knew the Bible. Why? Because I heard it read in church a few times. I knew some verses. And I saw John 3.16 flashed up at football games. So I really knew the Bible. Man, that guy with that afro and that rainbow hair, see, he held up the Bible. And we had one in our house, so, you know, I had a Bible in our house. My dad even had one of those big picture Bibles. And I'd open it up, and there's a really cool picture of Samson's hair getting cut off. Remember that. I just remember that. So see, I knew the Bible. But the truth is, I really never examined it. I really never read it. And if we would be honest, if we'd be really honest, very few of you do. I mean, really look at it. I think the reason's obvious. Not because it's boring or difficult. I think it's because it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon, a great Bible teacher from London, once said this. Listen to what he said. A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was not too humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And then he says this, And the best apology for the gospel, or the best defense for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Read it. Read it. Meditate on it. Someone once asked me, what is so special about the Bible? Two things. It's the one book that accurately describes history. Isaiah 46 says, remember this. Fix it in your mind. I am God and there is no other. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is not yet done. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. And the second thing about the Bible, and this is what I found true. It really is a light unto my path. I love this story. Imagine you go on vacation to the Swiss Alps, up in the mountains, and you get a nice A-frame Swiss chalet. And you can see it as you drive up. You have this Swiss chalet, and there's mountains in the back. And you go in there, and it's beautiful. Some people see the Bible like a beautiful picture hanging on the inside of that chalet. Imagine it has a golden frame, and it has some great artist painted the mountains. And so you look at that picture frame, and you say, what a beautiful painting of mountains. That's the way some people look at the Bible. They have it resting on their shelf, and it's beautiful leather. And we have the Bible in our house. But some people look at the Bible as if instead of a picture frame, a window was in that A-frame. And when you look out that window for yourself, you can see with your very own eyes the alps. You don't care what the frame of the window is. All you want to do is you want to see. When you, get a, when you open up the Word of God, finally I understand why I sin. I finally get it why I'm all so angry all the time. I finally understand really who God is and how great He is. The Bible is a window to your soul, and it helps you make sense out of life. It gives you eyes to see. And so when you read it, you hear the stories how the gospel changed lives of credible people. And you consider the events of Easter. You are now on the road to faith. In the last part, faith is when your eyes are opened. I love how Hebrews talks about faith. Faith is two things. It's when you finally believe that God exists. It's also this, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you believe this story? Some of you are still skeptical, and let me just tell you a little fairy tale story. I'm going to tell you a fairy tale story to end. And it's written by C.S. Lewis. You'll like this story. It's a really good story. If you like fairy tales, this is one of the best. This is one of Ken's favorite fairy tale stories. It's called The Witch of the Underland. The story is about an evil witch named the Lady of the Green Kirtle, the Queen of the Underland. Scary. I'm scared already. She's holding captive in her dark and hopeless underground world a prince from the overland and his three friends. And she wants to keep them there Because if she can, she'll one day rule over the overland. But she has to keep them in the underworld. To get them to stay under her rule, she casts an evil spell. She takes some green powder and throws it on the fireplace in their room. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes it. It did not blaze much, but a very sweet and drowsy smell came from it, and all through the conversation which followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. Secondly, she took out a musical instrument, rather like a mandolin. She began to play it with her fingers, a steady, monotonous thrumming. Thrum, thrum, thrum. See, that's the English, thrum. Thrumming that you did not notice after a few minutes The less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and your blood. This made it hard to think. The more enchanted you got, the more certain you felt that you weren't enchanted at all. The witch then said to the company over her spell, the overworld where you say you come from, it's all a dream. It's all a dream. And one of the company said, yes, yes, it's all a dream. But one of the members countered her spell, I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night, and I've seen him up in midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. Those words had a rousing effect. The other three all breathed again and looked at each other as if they were newly awakened. Why, there it is, cried the prince. Of course, how could we have forgotten it? Of course, we've all seen the sun. Then came the witch's voice, cooing softly, her what is this sun that you speak of? Do you mean anything by the word? Can you tell me what it's like? Asked the witch. Thrum, thrum, thrum. Please, it your grace," said the prince. "You see that lamp over in the corner? It is round and yellow, and it gives light to the whole room, and it hangs from the roof. Now, that thing which we call the sun is like that lamp, only far greater and brighter. It gives light to the whole overworld and hangs in the sky." But she laughs. laughs. You see, when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it's like a lamp. Your sun is a dream. And there's nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. That lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tail, a children's tale. Thrum, thrum, thrum. Then the one man stands up again and he says, one word, ma'am, and listen to what he says. One word, ma'am. I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one more thing to be said, even so. Suppose we've only dreamed or made up all these things, like trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real one. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is only the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game. If you're right, but four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. In other words, here's what he's saying, and we relate to this. If Easter is a fairy tale, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what do we have? Death. all we got but I'll tell you something personally I've seen the Sun not this Sun but the SON Sun in all of his brightness in my life the monotony of this world the skepticism of secularism it has a way of thrumming you to sleep not thinking that this world where the Sun actually lives is really the most important thing you can ever think about. But even if it's not, let's say it's not. To me, it's the only story that makes sense out of this world that has gone mad. Some of you, your lives are a wreck. Why? Is it because you've let the sun in? Or is it because you think he's a, a fairy tale? Probably the other one. The fact is this. He is risen. He is risen from the dead. I close in prayer. And as I do, I just really want you to consider this. If you're a skeptic, what else you got? Let's pray. Lord, we thank uh, We thank you for how clear you are with your scriptures. We thank you, God, that you've given us evidence, you've given us reasons to believe, but more than that, you've given us people around us whose lives are changed. And more than that, you've given us your scriptures. And more than that, your Holy Spirit who convicts us of that. But more than that, you've given us deep in our soul, you've given us this hint that we know there's more to this earth There's more to this world than this dark world. There's a heaven. I pray for those in here that are hungry for it and have never given their lives to you. I really pray that today they would solidify their belief and accept him into their life by faith. Thank you, God, for this day. In Christ's name we pray.